0: this uvula audio presentation of a tramp abroad by mark twain volume 17 chapter 49 i scale mount block by telescope after breakfast that morning in chamonix we went out in the yard and watched the gangs of excursioning tourists arriving and departing with their mules and guides and porters then we took a look through the telescope at the snowy hump of Mount Blanc. It was brilliant with sunshine, and the vast, smooth bulge seemed hardly 500 yards away. With the naked eye, we could dimly make out the house at the Pierre Pontou, which is located on the side of the great glacier, and is more than 3,000 feet above the level of the valley. But with the telescope, we could see all its details. While well, I looked, a woman rode by the house on a mule, and I saw her with sharp distinctness. I could have described her dress. I saw her nod to the people of the house and rein up on her mule, put her hand up to shield her eyes from the sun. I was not used to telescopes. In fact, I had never looked through a good one before. It seemed incredible to me that this woman could be so far away. I was satisfied that I could see all these details with my naked eye, but when I tried it, that mule and those vivid people had wholly vanished, and the house itself had become small and vague. I tried the telescope again, and again everything was vivid. The strong black shadows of the mule and the woman were flung against the side of the house, and I saw the mule's silhouette wave its ears. The telescopulist, or the telescopulariat, I do not know which is right, said a party was making a grand ascent "'and would come in sight on the remote upper heights presently. "'So we waited to observe this performance. "'Presently I had a superb idea. "'I wanted to stand with a party on the summit of Mount Blanc, "'merely to be able to say I had done it, "'and I believed the telescope could set me within seven feet of the uppermost man. "'The telescoper assured me that it could. "'Then I asked him how much I owed him for as far as I had got. He said one franc. I asked him how much would it cost to make the entire ascent? Three francs. I at once determined to make the entire ascent, but I first inquired if there was any danger. He said no, not by telescope. Said he had taken a great many parties to the summit and never lost a man. I asked what he would charge to let my agent go with me, together with such guides and porters as might be necessary. He said he would let Harris go for two francs, and that, unless we were unusually timid, he should consider guides and porters unnecessary. It was not customary to take them, at least not when going by telescope, for they were rather an encumbrance than a help. He said that the party now on the mountain were approaching the most difficult part, and if we hurried we should overtake them within ten minutes, and could then join them and have the benefit of their guides and porters without their knowledge and without expense to us. I then said we would start immediately. I believe I said it calmly, though I was conscious of a shudder and a paling cheek, in view of the nature of the exploit I was unreflectingly engaged in. But the old daredevil spirit was upon me, and I said that I had committed myself, and I would not back down. I would ascend Mount Blanc if it cost me my life. I told the man to slant his machine in the proper direction, and let us be off. Harris was afraid, did not want to go, but I heartened him up and said I would hold his hand all the way, so he gave his consent, though he trembled a little at first. I took a last pathetic look upon the pleasant summer scene about me, then boldly put my eye to the glass and prepared to mount among the grim glaciers and the everlasting snows. We took our way carefully and cautiously across the great Glacier des Bonnes. Over great yawning and terrific crevices, and among imposing crags and buttresses of ice, which were fringed with icicles of gigantic proportions. The desert of ice that stretched far and wide above us was wild and desolate and beyond description, and the perils which beset us were so great that at times I was minded to turn back. But I pulled my pluck together and pushed on. We passed the glacier safely and began to mount the steeps beyond. When we were seven minutes out from the starting point, we reached an altitude where the scene took a new aspect. An apparently limitless continent of gleaming snow was tilted heavenward before our faces. As my eye followed that awful acclivity far away and up into the remote skies, it seemed to me that all I had ever seen before of sublimity and magnitude was small and insignificant compared to this. We rested a moment and then began to mount with speed. Within three minutes we caught sight of the party ahead of us and stopped to observe them. They were toiling up a long, slanting ridge of snow. Twelve people roped together, some fifteen feet apart, marching in single file, and strongly marked against the clear blue sky. One was a woman. We could see them lift their feet and put them down, and we saw them swing their alpenstocks forward in unison, like so many pendulums, and then bear their weight upon them. We saw the lady wave her handkerchief. They dragged themselves upward in a worn and weary way, for they had been climbing steadily from the Grand Moulay on the Glacier de Besson since three in the morning, and it was now eleven. We saw them sink down into the snow and rest, and drink something from a bottle. After a while, they moved on, and as they approached the final short dash of the home stretch, we closed up on them and joined them. Presently, we all stood together on the summit. What a view was spread out below. Away off, under the northwestern horizon, rolled the silent billows of the Farnes Oberland, their snowy crest glinting softly in the subdued lights of the distance. In the north, rose the giant form of the wobble horn, draped from peak to shoulder in thunder thunderclouds. Beyond him to the right stretched the grand processional summits of the Cisalpine Cordillera, drowned in a sensuous haze. To the east loomed the colossal masses of the Yodelhorn, the Foodlehorn, and the Dinnerhorn, their cloudless summits flashing white and cold in the sun. Beyond them shimmered the faint far line of the Gauts of Jubalpore, and the Alguilis of the Alleghenies. In the south towered the smoking peak of Popocatapetl, and the unapproachable altitudes of the peerless Scrabblehorn. In the southwest lay the stately range of the Himalayas, dreaming in the purple gloom. And thence, all around, curving horizon, the eye roved over a troubled sea of sun-kissed Alps and noted, here and there, the noble proportions and the soaring domes of the bottle horn, and the saddle horn, and the shovel horn, and the powder horn, all bathed in the glory of noon and mottled with softly gliding blots, the shadows flung from drifting clouds. Overcome by the scene, we all raised a triumphant and tremendous shout in unison. A startled man at my elbow said, Confound you! What do you yell like that for, right here in the street? That brought me back down to Chamonix like a flirt. I gave that man some spiritual advice and disposed of him, and then paid the telescope man his fee, and said that we were charmed with the trip, and would remain down and not reascend and require him to fetch us down by telescope. This pleased him very much, for of course we could have stepped back to the summit and put him to the trouble of bringing us home if we wanted. I judged we could now get our diplomas, so we went after them. But the chief guide put us off, with one pretext or another, during all the time we stayed in Chamonix, and we ended by never getting them at all. So much for his prejudice against people's nationality. However, we worried him enough to make him remember us and our ascent for some time. He even said once that he wished there was a lunatic asylum in Chamonix. This shows that he really had fears that we were going to drive him mad. It was what we intended to do, but lack of time defeated it. I cannot venture to advise the reader one way or another as to ascending Mount Blanc. I can only say this. If he is at all timid, the enjoyments of the trip will hardly make up for the hardships and sufferings that he will endure but if he has a good nerve and young and healthy and bold and have a firm will and can lead his family comfortably provided for in case the worst happened he would find the ascent a wonderful experience and the view from the top a vision to dream about and to tell about and recall with exultation all the days of his life While I do not advise such a person to attempt the ascent, I do not advise him against it. But if he elects to attempt it, let him be warily careful of two things. Choose a calm, clear day, and do not pay the telescope man in advance. There are dark stories of his getting advance payers on the summit, and then leaving them up there to rot. A frightful tragedy was once witnessed, through the Chamonix telescopes. Think of questions and answers like these on the inquest. Coroner, you saw the deceased lose his life? Witness. I did. Coroner, where was he at the time? Witness. Close to the summit of Mont Blanc. Coroner, where were you? Witness. In the main street of Chamonix. Coroner. What was the distance between you? Witness, a little over five miles, as the bird flies. This accident occurred in 1866, a year and a month after the disaster on the Matterhorn. Three adventurous English gentlemen, of great experience in mountain climbing, made their minds up to ascend Mount Blanc without guides or porters. All endeavors to dissuade them from their project failed. Powerful telescopes are numerous in Chamonix. These huge brass tubes mounted on their scaffoldings and pointed skyward from every choice of vantage ground have the formidable look of artillery and give the town the general aspect of getting ready to repel a charge of angels. The reader may easily believe that the telescopes had plenty of custom on that August morning in 1866, for everybody knew of the dangerous undertaking which was on foot and all had fears that misfortune would result. All the morning, the tubes remained directed toward the mountain heights, each with its anxious group around it. But the white deserts were vacant. At last, toward eleven o'clock, the people who were looking through the telescopes cried out, There they are! And sure enough, far up on the loftiest terraces of the Grand Plateau, the three pygmies appeared climbing with remarkable vigor and spirit. They disappeared in the corridor and were lost to sight for an hour. Then they reappeared and were presently seen standing together upon the extreme summit of Mount Blanc. So all was well. They remained a few minutes on the highest point of land in Europe, a target for all the telescopes, and were then seen to begin descent. Suddenly, all three vanished, An instant after, they appeared again, two thousand feet below. Evidently, they had tripped, and been shot down an almost perpendicular slope of ice to a point where it joined the border of the upper glacier. Naturally, the distant witnesses supposed that they were now looking upon three corpses, so they could hardly believe their eyes when they presently saw two of the men rise to their feet and bend over the third during two and a half hours they watched the two busying themselves over the extended form of their brother who seemed entirely inert chamonix's affairs stood still everybody was in the street everybody was interested upon what was going on on that lofty isolated stage five miles away Finally, the two, one of them walking with great difficulty, were seen to begin descent, abandoning the third, who was no doubt lifeless. Their movements were followed step by step until they reached the corridor and disappeared behind its ridge. Before they had time to traverse the corridor and reappear, twilight had come, and the power of the telescope was at an end. The survivors had a most perilous journey before them in the gathering darkness, for they had to get down the Grand Moulay before they would find a safe stopping place, a long and tedious descent, and perilous enough even in good daylight. The oldest guides expressed the opinion that they could not succeed, that all the chances were that they would lose their lives. Yet those brave men did succeed. They reached the Grand Moulay in safety. Even the fearful shock which their nerves had sustained was not sufficient to overcome their coolness and courage. It would appear from the official account that they were threading their way down through those dangers from the closing in of twilight until two o'clock in the morning, maybe later, because the rescuing party from Chamonix reached the Grand Moulay about three in the morning and moved there from the scene of the disaster under the leadership of Sir George Young, who had only just arrived. After having been on his feet twenty-four hours in the exhausting work of mountain-climbing, Sir George began the reascent at the head of the relief party of six guides to recover the corpse of his brother. This was considered a new imprudence, as the number was too few for the service required. Another relief party presently arrived at the cabin on the Grand Moulay and quartered themselves there to await events ten hours after sir george's departure toward the summit this new relief team were still scanning the snowy altitudes above them from their own high perches among the ice deserts ten thousand feet above the level of the sea but the whole forenoon had passed without a glimpse of any living thing appearing up there this was alarming half a dozen of their numbers set out early in the afternoon then to seek and succor sir george and his guides The persons remaining at the cabin saw these disappear, and then ensued another distressing wait. Four hours passed without tidings. Then, at five o'clock, another relief team, consisting of three guides, set forth from the cabin. They carried food and cordials for refreshments of their predecessors. They took lanterns with them, too. Night was coming on now again, and to make matters worse, a fine cold rain had begun to fall. At the same time that these three began their dangerous ascent, the official guide-in-chief of Mount Blanc undertook the dangerous descent to Chamonix all alone to get reinforcements. However, a couple of hours later at 7 p.m., the anxious solicitude came to an end, and happily, a bugle note was heard and a cluster of black specks was distinguishable against the snows of the upper heights. The watchers counted these specks eagerly, Fourteen. Nobody was missing. An hour and a half later, they were all safe under the roof of the cabin. They had brought the corpse with them. Sir George Young tarried there but a few minutes and then began the long, troublesome descent from the cabin to Chamonix. He probably reached there about two or three o'clock in the morning. After having been afoot among the rocks and glaciers during two days and two nights, his endurance was equal to his daring. The cause of the unaccountable delay of Sir George and the relief parties among the heights where the disaster had happened was a thick fog, or partly that and partly the slow and difficult work of conveying the dead body down the perilous steeps. The corpse, upon being viewed at the inquest, showed no bruises, and it was some time before the surgeons discovered that the neck was broken. One of the surviving brothers had sustained some unimportant injuries, but the other had suffered no hurt at all. How these men could fall 2,000 feet almost perpendicularly and live afterwards is a most strange and unaccountable thing. A great many women have made the ascent to Mont Blanc. An English girl, Miss Stratton, conceived the daring idea two or three years ago of attempting the ascent in the middle of winter. She tried it and succeeded. Moreover, she froze two of her fingers on the way up. She fell in love with her guide on the summit, and she married him when she got to the bottom again. There is nothing in romance in the way of a striking situation which can beat this love scene in mid-heaven on an isolated ice crest with a thermometer at zero and an arctic gale blowing. The first woman who ascended sent in Mont Blanc was a girl aged 22, Mademoiselle Maria Paradis. In 1809, nobody was with her but her sweetheart, and he was not a guide. The sex then took a rest for about thirty years, when Mademoiselle Donville made the ascent in 1838. In Chamonix, I picked up a rude old lithograph of that day which pictured her in the act. However, I value it less as a work of art than as a fashion plate. Miss D'Angerville put on a pair of men's pantaloons to climb it, which was wise, but she cramped their utility by adding her petticoat, which was just plain idiotic. One of the mournfulest calamities which men's disposition to climb dangerous mountains has resulted in happened on Mont Blanc in September of 1870. Monsieur Darve tells the story briefly in his Histoire du Mont Blanc. In the next chapter, I will copy its chief features. Chapter Forty Five: A Catastrophe Which Cost Eleven Lives. On the fifth of September, eighteen seventy, a caravan of eleven persons departed from Chamonix to make the ascent of Mount Blanc. Three of the party were tourists: Messrs. Randall and Bean, Americans, and Mr. George Corkindale, a Scotch gentleman. There were three guides and five porters. The cabin on the Grand Moulay was reached that day. The ascent was resumed early the next morning, september sixth. The day was fine and clear, the movements of the party were observed through telescopes of Chamonix. At two o'clock in the afternoon they were seen to reach the summit. A few minutes later they were seen making the first steps of the descent then a cloud closed around them and hid them from view. Eight hours passed, and the cloud still remained. Night came. No one had returned to the Grand Moulay. Sylvain Coutet, keeper of the cabin there, suspected a misfortune, and sent down to the valley for help. The detachment of guides went up, but by the time they had made the tedious trip and reached the cabin, a raging storm had set in. They had to wait. Nothing could be attempted in such a tempest. The wild storm lasted more than a week, without ceasing. But on the 17th, Coutet and several guys left the cabin and succeeded in making the ascent. In the snowy waste near the summit, they came upon five bodies, lying upon their sides in a reposeful attitude, which suggested they possibly had fallen asleep there. While they were exhausted with fatigue and hunger and benumbed with cold, they never knew when death stole upon them. Coutet moved a few steps further and discovered five more bodies. The eleventh corpse, that of a porter, was not found, although diligent searches were made for it. In the pocket of Mr. Bean, one of the Americans, was found a notebook in which had been penciled some sentences which admit us in flesh and spirit, as it were, to the presence of these men during the last hours of life, and to the grisly horrors which their fading vision looked upon and their failing consciousness took cognizance of. Tuesday, September 6th I have made the ascent of Mont Blanc with ten people, Eight guides, and Mr. Corkendale and Mr. Randall. We reached the summit at half past two. Immediately after quitting it, we were enveloped in clouds of snow. We passed the night in a grotto hollowed in the snow, which afforded us but poor shelter, and I was ill all night. September 7th morning. The cold is excessive. The snow falls heavily and without interruption. The guides are taking no rest. Evening. My dear Hesse, we have been two days on Mount Blanc in the midst of a terrible hurricane of snow. We have lost our way and are in a hole scooped in the snow at an altitude of 15,000 feet. I no longer have any hope of descending. They wandered around and around in the blinding snowstorm, hopelessly lost in a space only a hundred yards square. When cold and fatigue vanquished them at last, they scooped their cave and lay down there to die by inches. They were unaware that five steps more would have brought them to the true path. They were so near to life and safety, and they did not suspect it. The thought of this gives the sharpest pang that the tragic story conveys. The author of the Histoire du Mont Blanc introduced the closing sentences of Mr. Bean's pathetic records like this. Here the characters are large and unsteady. The hand which traces them is becoming chilled and torpid. But the spirit survives, and the faith and resignation of the dying man are expressed with a sublime simplicity. Perhaps this notebook will be found and sent to you. We have nothing to eat. Our feet are already frozen. I am exhausted. I have strength to write only a few more words. I have left means for C's education. I know you will employ them wisely. I die with faith in God and with loving thoughts for you. Farewell to all. We shall meet again in heaven. I think of you always. It is the way of the Alps to deliver death to their victims with a merciful swiftness. But here the rule failed. These men suffered the bitterest death that has been recorded in the history of these mountains, freighted as that history is with grisly tragedies. Chapter 46 meeting a hog on a precipice. Mr. Harris and I took some guides and porters and ascended to the Hotel de Pyramide, which is perched on the high moraine which borders the Glacier de Basson. The road led sharply uphill all the way through grass and flowers and woods. It was a pleasant walk, barring the fatigue of the climb. From the hotel we could view the huge glacier at very close range. After a rest, we followed down a path which had been made in the steep inner frontage of the moraine, and stepped upon the glacier itself. One of the shows of the place was a tunnel-like cavern, which had been hewed in the glacier. The proprietor of this tunnel took candles and conducted us into it. It was three or four feet wide and about six feet high. The walls of pure and solid ice emitted a soft and rich blue light, which produced a lovely effect, and suggested enchanted caves and that sort of thing. When we had proceeded some yards and were entering darkness, we turned about and had a dainty sunlit picture of distant woods and heights, framed in the strong arch of the tunnel and seen through the tender blue radiance of the tunnel's atmosphere. The cabin was nearly a hundred yards long, and when we reached its inner limit, the proprietor stepped into a branch tunnel with his candles, and left us buried in the bowels of the glacier in pitch darkness. We judged his purpose was murder and robbery, so we got out our matches and prepared to sell our lives as dearly as possible by setting the glacier on fire, if worse came to worse. But we soon perceived that this man had changed his mind, He began to sing in a deep, melodious voice, and woke some curious and pleasing echoes. By and by he came back and pretended that that was what he had gone behind there for. We believed as much of that as we wanted to. Thus our lives had been once more in imminent peril, but by the exercise of the swift sagacity and cool courage which had saved us so often, we had added another escape to that long list. The tourist should visit that ice cavern by all means, for it is well worth the trouble, But I would advise him to go only with a strong and well-armed force. I do not consider artillery necessary, yet it would not be unadvisable to take it along, if convenient. The journey going and coming is about three miles and a half, three of which are on level ground, which made it less than a day, but I would counsel the unpractised if not pressed for time, to allow themselves two days. Nothing is gained in the Alps by overexertion. Nothing is gained by crowding two days' work into one for the poor sake of being able to boast of the exploit afterwards. It will be found much better in the long run to do the thing in two days, and then subtract one of them from the narrative. This saves fatigue and does not injure the narrative. All the more thoughtful among the Alpine tourists do this. We now called upon the guide-in-chief and asked for a squadron of guides and porters for the ascent of Montevert. This idiot glared at us and said, You don't need guides and porters to go to Montevert. What do we need then? Such as you, an ambulance. I was so stung by this brutal remark that I took my custom elsewhere. Betimes next morning, we had reached an altitude of 5,000 feet above the level of the sea. Here we camped and breakfasted. There was a cabin there. The spot is called Calais, and a spring of ice-cold water. On the door of the cabin was a sign, in French, to the effect that, quote, One may here see a living chamois for fifty centimes We did not invest. What we wanted to see was a dead one. A little afternoon, we ended the ascent and arrived at the new hotel on the Mont Honvert, and had a view of six miles right up the great glacier, the famous Mer de Glace. At this point, it is like a sea whose deep swells and long rolling swells have been caught in mid movement and frozen solid. But further up, it is broken up into wildly tossing billows of ice. We descended a ticklish path. In the steep side of the moraine and invaded the glacier. There were tourists of both sexes scattered far and wide over it and everywhere, and it had a festive look of a skating rink. The Empress Josephine came this far once, but not alone. A small army of men preceded her to clear the path and carpet it, probably, and she followed under the protection of sixty eight guides. Her successor visited Chamonix later, but in far different style. It was seven weeks after the first fall of the empire, and poor Marie-Louise, ex empress was a fugitive. She came at night in a storm with only two attendants, and stood before a peasant's hut, tired, bedraggled, soaked with rain. Quote, the red print of her lost crown still girdling her brow, and implored admittance, and was refused. A few days before, the adulations and applause of the nation were sounding in her ear, and now she had come to this. We crossed the Mer de Glace in safety, but we had misgivings. The crevices in the ice yawned deep and blue and mysterious, and it made one nervous to traverse them. The huge round waves of ice were slippery and difficult to climb, and the chances of tripping and sliding down them and darting into a crevasse. Were too many to be comfortable. In the bottom of a deep swall between two of the biggest of the ice waves, we found a fraud who pretended to be cutting steps in to ensure the safety of tourists. He was soldiering when we came upon him, but he hopped up and chipped out a couple of steps, about big enough for a cat, and charged us a franc or two for it. Then he sat down to doze till the next party should come along. He had collected the blackmail from two or three hundred people already that day, but had not chipped out ice enough to impair the glacier perceptibly. I have heard of a good many soft sinecures, but seems to me that keeping Tollbridge on a glacier has got to be the softest one I've encountered yet. It was a blazing hot day, and it brought a persistent and persecuting thirst with it. What an unspeakable luxury it was to slake that thirst with the pure and limpid ice water of the glacier. Down the sides of every great rib of pure ice poured limpid rills in gutters carved by their own attrition. Better still, wherever a rock had lain, there was now a bowl-shaped hole with smooth white sides and bottom of ice. And this bowl was brimming with water of such absolute clearness that the careless observer would not have seen it at all, but would think that the bowl was empty. These fountains had such an alluring look that I often stretched myself out when I was not thirsty, and dipped my face in, and drank till my teeth ached. Everywhere among the Swiss mountains, we had at hand the blessing not to be found in Europe, except in the mountains, of water capable of quenching thirst. Everywhere in the Swiss Highlands, brilliant little rills of exquisitely cold water went dancing along by the roadsides, and my comrade and I were always drinking and always delivering our deep gratitude. But in Europe everywhere, except in the mountains, the water is flat and insipid, beyond the power of words to describe. It is served lukewarm. But no matter, ice wouldn't help it. It is incurably flat incurably insipid. It is only good to wash with. I wonder it doesn't occur to the average inhabitant to try it for that. In Europe, people say contemptuously, nobody drinks the water here. Indeed, they have a sound and sufficient reason. In many places, they even have what may be called a prohibitory reason. In Paris and Munich, for example, they say, don't drink the water, it's just poison. Either America is healthier than Europe, notwithstanding her deadly indulgence in ice water, or she does not tally up the run of her death rate as sharply as Europe does. I think we do keep up the death statistics accurately, and if we do, our cities are healthier than the cities of Europe. Every month, the German government tabulates the death rate of the world and publishes it. I scrapbooked these reports during several months, and it was curious to see how regular and persistently each city repeated its same death rate, month after month. The tables might as well have been stereotyped, they vary so little. These tables are based upon weekly reports showing the average of deaths in each 1,000 population for a year. Munich, always present with her 33 deaths in each 1,000 of her population. Yearly average. Chicago was as constant with her 15 or 17, and Dublin with her 48, and so on. Only a few American cities appear in these tables, but they are scattered so widely over the country that they furnish a good general average of city health in the United States. And I think it will be granted that our towns and villages are healthier than our cities. Here's the average of the only American cities reported in the German tables. Chicago, deaths in 1,000 annually, 16. Philadelphia, 18. St. Louis, 18. San Francisco, 19. New York, the Dublin of America, 23. See how the figures jump up as soon as one arrives at the transatlantic list? Paris, 27. Glasgow, 27. London, 28. Vienna, 28. Augsburg, 28. Braunschweig, 28. Königsberg, 29. Cologne, 29. Dresden, 29. Hamburg, 29. Berlin, 30. Bombay, 30. Warsaw, 31. Breslau, 31. Odessa, 32. Munich, 33. Strasbourg, 33. Pest, 35. Casale, 35, Lisbon, 36, Liverpool, 36, Prague, 37, Madras, 37, Bucharest, 39, St. Petersburg, 40, Trieste, 40, Alexandria, Egypt, 43, Dublin, 48, and Calcutta, 55. Edinburgh is as healthy as New York at 23, but there is no city in the entire list which is healthier, except Frankfurt on Main at 20. But Frankfurt is not as healthy as Chicago, San Francisco, St. Louis, or Philadelphia. Perhaps a strict average of the world might develop the fact that where one in a thousand of America's population dies, two in a thousand of the other populations on Earth succumb. I do not like to make insinuations, but I do think that the above statistics darkly suggest that these people over here drink this detestable water on the sly. We climbed the moraine on the opposite side of the glacier and then crept along its sharp ridge a hundred yards or so, in pretty constant danger of a tumble to the glacier below. The fall would have been only a hundred feet, but it would have closed me out as effectually as a thousand. Therefore, I respected the distance accordingly, and was glad when the trip was done. A moraine is an ugly thing to a salt head first. At a distance, it looks like an endless grave of fine sand and accurately shaped and nicely smoothed. But close up, it's found to be made mainly of rough boulders of all sizes, from that of a man's head to that of a cottage. By and by, we came to the Mauvais-Pas or the villainous road, to translate it freely. It was a breakneck path around the face of a precipice forty or fifty feet high, and nothing to hang on to but some iron railings. I got along slowly and safely and uncomfortably, and finally reached the middle. My hopes began to rise a little, but they were quickly blighted, for there I met a hog, a long-nosed, bristly fellow, that held up his snout and worked his nostrils at me inquiringly. It was a hog on a pleasure excursion in Switzerland. Now think of that. It is striking and unusual. A body might write a poem about it. He could not retreat if he had been disposed upon to do that. It would have been foolish to stand upon our dignity in a place where there was hardly room to stand upon our feet. So he did nothing of the sort. There were twenty or thirty ladies and gentlemen behind us, and we all turned around and went back, and the hog followed behind. The creature did not seem set up by what he had done; he had probably done it before. We reached the restaurant on the height called the Chapeau at four in the afternoon. It was a memento factory, and the stock was large, cheap, and varied. I bought the usual paper cutter to remember the place by, and had Mount Blanc, the Mauvais Pas and the rest of the region branded on my Alpenstock. Then we descended to the valley and walked home without being tied together. This was not dangerous, for the valley was five miles wide and quite level. We reached the hotel before nine o'clock. The next morning we left for Geneva on top of the diligence, under shelter of a gay awning. If I remember rightly, there were more than twenty people up there. It was so high that the ascent was made by a ladder, The huge vehicle was full everywhere, inside and out. Five other diligences left at the same time all full. We had engaged our seats two days before to make sure and paid the regulation price $5 apiece. But the rest of the company were wiser. They had trusted Baedeker and waited. Consequently, some of them got their seats for $1 or $2. Baedeker knows all about hotels, railway, and diligence companies and speaks his mind freely. He is a trustworthy friend of the traveler. We never saw Mont Blanc at his best until we were many miles away. Then he lifted his majestic proportions high into the heavens, all white and cold and solemn, and made the rest of the world seem little and plebeian, and cheap and trivial. As he passed out of sight at last, an old Englishman settled himself in his seat and said, well, I'm satisfied. I have seen the principal features of Swiss scenery. Mountain Blanc the Goiter, now for home.